Welcome to episode 8 of Weekend at Crombies. This month we are looking at F for Fake. Hello everyone. Yes, welcome to episode 8 of Weekend at Crombies and the F for Fake Extravaganza. My name is James Evans Esquire. Ain't that the truth? My name is Hugh. For the last 17 minutes, I've been lying my head off. (laughs) And um, hopefully, uh, as we proceed through the murky waters of F for Fake, some of the statements that we've just made will make a little bit more sense, so that when you reflect back... On the podcast in what hopefully won't be two and a half hours time, you'll be able to uh, understand a little bit more about what we're what we're talking about. So shall we begin so, with F of Fake? Now this is this is a new um, a new one for us because it's a documentary, not a is, not a feature. Well, it is a documentary, yeah. And um, although Orson Welles himself, who the director of the film, described F for Fake as a new kind of film, and others have described it as a film essay um, rather than a documentary per se. And I think that's probably a fair reflection of the style of the film. We'll come on to the kind of detail of the, the, the way it's filmed and what it means, but it has elements of documentary in it, but it has also elements of fiction and um, elements of polemic and opinion as well so i think fundamentally it is probably it would fall under the genre of of documentary but there's a lot going on in the film itself yeah so again to to recap the plot um it's it's going to be a slightly different to any other plot recap but i guess the first you get some introductions in a quite stylistic way of orson welles he's he's performing magic and what have you but the first meat of the story is again the the sort of the documentary style of uh of art forger Elmia de Horry. Yeah, um, and yeah, and it, it it's true to say that, um, and again, this might come as blessed relief to some of our listeners that um, in describing the documentary, it's probably more appropriate to kind of give an overview of the approach taken and the process that was taken in that particular context. So, as Hugh rightly says, in principle, the film is um, it starts off as a um, uh, a, a documentary about fabled art forger Elmir de Hori. And on the kind of parallel to that, his relationship with biographer called Clifford Irving, who was a kind of journalist and um, an author um, who was intrigued by Elmir de Hori's um, story, his life story. It's quite an extraordinary life story and was at the point at which the documentary was being made, F for Fate was being made, was also writing an, a biography of Elmer de Hori. Now, as it transpires, as the documentary about Elmer de Hori was being filmed, news broke of a another type of fakery, another forgery, that Clifford Irving had written a fake biography of Howard Hughes. Um, so we have, at this point in time, a conjoining of... A documentary about Elmer de Hori interspersed with the story of Clifford Irving's forged uh, forged biography of Howard Hughes and the relationship between Clifford Irving and Elmer de Hori and the nature of forgery in and of itself. So it becomes quite a mesh and a mashup of various different storylines and various different themes the principle of which is that you have orson wells who is the director but also the kind of narrator of the film in the midst of this story building the story up into um this kind of treatise on the nature of truth and the nature of fakery front and audacity i guess to a certain extent i mean that's that's a kind of like the 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 broader process of the 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 documentary itself it does reach inception levels of of depth when you talk about this this renowned forger who never actually comes out and 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 says point blank i am a forger i i fake pieces of art and i sell Mm. them even though he does it quite a lot on camera and and kind of makes a play of it you know he like he scribbles a, a picasso and then burns it and this kind of stuff yeah um there's lots of comments about yeah well um 
if, if people like it, does it count? Does it matter if it's forged or not? Yeah. And yeah. then you've got Clifford Irving, who again was, was interviewing him, but then is also under scrutiny for being a fake himself. And then yeah. Yeah, Orson Welles is yeah the, the the booming narrator behind it all. I just repeat everything you said, James. But in, in... <laughs> yeah. I've made a copy well, of of what you've just said. <laughs> exactly. But, but so so which, which which is the truth? Which yeah. is the the, the, the truthful mm-hmm. statement? Now there are some other elements of, of the the film um, but, uh, that sorry. come through yeah. in, in that particular kind of process. Yeah, I will say actually, but the. <laughs> <laughs> tried to recap the plot and end up saying exactly what you say is because yeah. the film is both very simple and very mixed up dense. Yeah, dense. Dense. There's, there's, there's either a lot going on or there's not a lot going on so what, I, what we just yeah. said there is, is the simple top line of it but then there's there's snippets and, and flashbacks and flash forwards and, and odd characters popping in and musings and poetry and all of this crammed into very quick cuts um, that, to, to all to do with the documentary so it's not like you see five minutes of someone musing about Elmia de Hore and then you cut to someone else talking about further, which furthers the narrative, and then someone else. You get jumps, you get flashbacks, you get you get repeated um, bits of film and all this kind of stuff. So it's there's there's a there's a certain amount of style thrown into it, which you got to work hard to keep up with it. It, it, yeah, you do, and it's quite discombobulating at the start of the yeah. film. Actually, I think it takes a little bit of while for, for 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 it for you to settle into what the film is actually telling you, and the kind of process and the story that it's telling you. It jumps from one storyline to another storyline very quickly. It starts actually with a. a, a a scene of, of Orson Welles at a train station um, doing a magic trick uh, for a child um, and kind of um, producing coins um, from the, this child's kind of his, his ear, his mouth. I can't remember. His, ma- his mouth. It's his mouth, isn't it? Yeah. I don't think it uh, wasn't just, from his mouth. I think it was from Orson Welles' hand that he tried oh, to yes, pretend it was his mouth. <laughs> it's not The Exorcist. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Orson Welles is a renowned director, but he's, he's not the devil. Um <laughs> Can't, can't cause children to sick up money as much as you know we might all want that unfortunately that's beyond the realms of kind of physics i think and and, and natural law anyway i, I digress um, so yeah awesome wells is is he, he starts by saying effectively that um you know this this film or this documentary is about fakery uh, and that everything that he will tell us in the film for the first hour well for the hour that in the next hour everything you hear will be will be the truth will be the the absolute truth i'm not lying to you um and he's effectively setting us up a little bit in in the context of what the film is actually doing for us um there's it proceeds to um fill the screen with incredibly quick cuts the editing in the film is extraordinary. It cuts from um, snippets of people looking um, on the streets, looking at um, uh, a beautiful woman passing through. It cuts to conversations that take place in restaurants between Elmir de Hori and party guests that he has. It cuts to what looks like a Talking Heads film of Clifford Irving talking about Elmir de Hori. Yeah. Then it cuts to Elmir de Hori doing paintings of Picassos or um is it Mondegran? 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 I'm not. As you can probably tell, I'm a bit of a philistine when it comes to art. But you know, effectively drawing very quickly, sketch-like, perfect artistic representations of some of the greats, and then burning them. And then it, it cuts back to Orson Welles in this kind of ghostly um, editing room where he's dictating to the audience what the story is telling us, and his musings on 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 art, and his musings on truth, and his musings on um, the nature of experts and yeah. processes like that. As the film goes on, or as the documentary goes on, what we understand effectively is this broader story of Elmir de Hori and how um, he, as a, um, a kind of an artist, didn't have a voice of his own and so therefore was struggling to sell paintings and found a talent in copying or replicating some of the great artists and that he would then sell these forgeries um to some art experts and then those experts would sell those forgeries in quotation marks at a much greater cost to museums and you know the assumption is is that some of the greatest works that we see in museums across the world are in fact forgeries by Elmir de Hori what we don't quite get through the film though and i think this is entirely the purpose is the extent to which Elmir de Hori is telling the truth and the extent to which we believe or are led to believe the this element of the truth and how much actually that what he describes 
is actually the reality of what happened in his life. He, he says he comes from aristocracies, Hungarian um, aristocracy. Um, I, given, given he's an art forger, how do we know whether that's true or not? And the same thing with Clifford Irving, who is doing the uh, the biography of, of Elmir de Hori. He talks about Elmir de Hori as the ultimate forger, but then we find out late, uh, reasonably early on that actually he has forged himself a biography of Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes, who himself would often use doubles to misdirect people into uh, thinking that he was appearing at a particular event or would be you know walking off one of the planes that he'd he'd flown but actually it wasn't Howard Hughes at all so how do we know what point in this film the truth is being told and then Orson Welles brings his own kind of examples about his career and his life and film and theatre as an inessential piece of fakery into the process as well. Yeah, and I'd say that was more that was sort of um, act two of the film because again, there's yeah, a lot about so, act act one is 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 very front loaded. That's the majority of the film about the again Elmi Dahori, Clifford Irving, and Howard Hughes how that all ties together. You then go into Orson Welles's sort of early biography when he's again he was an actor in Ireland and kind of faked his way into acting and then he faked his way into the movies a good bit about his War of the Worlds his notorious War of the Worlds broadcast. Yeah, and when he talks about that and that's kind of act two is when he Orson Welles draws back on that um, and neither one neither story really reaches a conclusion actually Orson Welles doesn't reflect on yeah. where he's gone since then because actually you know they, they, they mention Citizen Kane and that's pretty much it in terms of Orson Welles' experience from that point on he's just on the Riviera drinking sherry um, mm-hmm. and and again El Mio Torre is the first act we we don't take it from anywhere there's, there's mention about him going to jail or him not wanting to be in jail mm-hmm. and I think the actual biography of the real story of El Mio Torre or at least the story that happened after this film I think he may have either committed suicide or died because he didn't want to go back to jail yeah, um, he did. He killed himself yeah. because he was being extradited um, yeah. by the French police and they reached an agreement with the Spanish authorities because Elmi de Hori is kind of holed up in Ibiza, which yeah. doesn't sound very terrible. But um, at the same time, he had recently been in jail for the crime of homosexuality, mm-hmm. not art forgery, but homosexuality. And he did not want to go back to jail. And he was being chased by Interpol and the French authorities, not for homosexuality, I should say, but for art forgery. Yeah. And at the point at which the extradition was was granted he killed himself um and so it actually has quite a sad ending to the story um for elmir de hori at least in that context yeah they didn't go into that it's more remains as a reflection on it does art and its value and it's inherent what is true what is fake and then we come to the third act of of the film which is where um, Orson Welles pretty much tells you a story um, or tells now narrates something again related to the art world about Picasso. This ties back to James mentioned the the earlier shots of the of men gaping at a woman walking past. Um, this woman turns out to be the Oya Koja Koda, who is she also Hungarian I think. Um, yeah, she's Hungarian. Yeah, yeah. yeah. the story was also Orson Welles's wife yeah. um, or lover at the time. Yeah, um, yeah, you, you could you could certainly tell he was he was. Um, there's a bit cool. of opening going on. You, there, there is, again, we'll come to the style of it, but yeah, in, in the, the opening scene when they're meant to have secretly filmed shots of men looking at Oya, um, yeah. it, there, there is, basically, you just see her bottom walking around for an uncomfortably long time. Um, yeah. Yeah. She's dressed in a dress, I might add. It's, it's, it's not, yes. well, but it's, it is literally just a leering shot for, oh God, it must be like five or eight minutes of just oh, it's walking. it's quite a long time, isn't it? Yeah, you yeah. never see her from the waist upwards. It's just walking no. legs, walking legs, walking legs. And, yeah, the faces of men leering at her. Um, we, I'm sure Orson Welles was one of them. But anyway, the story of that is Picasso, again, also saw her walking around. She apparently she has a good line for walking. Got obsessed She's with her. She's a good walker. She, she's a good walker, yep. She, she, she certainly covers a lot of distance. And uh, he, and she mostly must. I don't know how she manages to pack for holidays because she was on her holidays, but managed to find a different outfit every day to, yeah, to I mean, walk. In fairness, there wasn't a lot of cloth. That's on true. Any you, you, so you, that's could, probably... you could do the trick where you roll up and stuff it in your shoes, and you'd be alright. Yeah. Um, uh, so she she's walking past Picasso's door every day of her holiday. Picasso, um, distracted by a Swedish trombone artist, um, it, it keeps seeing her. Uh, outside his um, window becomes obsessed with her she ends mm. up inside his, his studio um, and he paints 22 pictures of her on the condition that she she gets them herself and runs away with them so yeah so she she has she has said to Picasso that she will only she will only pose she will only perform as it were for him um, if she is allowed to take the 22 paintings away yeah. and they are hers effectively but his condition is that she may never sell them yeah 
Um, and then about a year later, this great exhibition is opening in Paris, uh, saying, oh, look, we've got 22 new pictures from Picasso. It's a whole new period for Picasso. Let's take a look at it. So Picasso, enraged, comes down to, to Paris to, to find out what well, he knows what these pictures are. But when he bursts into the gallery, he finds these 22 pictures are not the ones he painted. Um, they're 22 forgeries. And then Oya leads her back to um, this garret in Paris where her dying grandfather is was waiting for him, her dying grandfather being a master forger who who burned the 22 pictures that Picasso did and yeah. and created 22 new ones. And um, yeah. they then have a... They kind of have... Um, Orson Welles is now doing this. He's having He and Oya are having a stylized conversation about what Picasso was having a conversation with her grandfather about. Um, yeah. about and, and, and Welles is playing Picasso in this instance, yeah, isn't he? Of it? course he is. <laughs> <laughs> and Oya is playing her grandfather. Yeah, and it's the case, you know, the case of, um, you know, the, the the forger is basically saying to Picasso, "I've created something too. I've created a whole new um, era of Picasso." And Picasso saying, "No, you haven't. You've stolen my work. You do nothing." Um, and it goes back and forth like that. It's basically, um, you know, it's it's another conversation on what the nature of art is. And um, and but the, the interesting thing, obviously, about that particular story is that it's completely made up. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and and it's the point at which Orson Welles kind of reveals his hand, as he said early in, in the film, for the next hour, I will tell you nothing but the truth. Um, and he says, you know, for the first hour, I told you nothing but the truth. But the last 17 minutes have been a complete lie. And the, the idea that that story itself was a forgery was born out of the idea that you would you could create and build up in that particular documentary a sense what the truth might tell us about art and then within that context build in a story which is ostensibly as absurd as the Elmir de Hori story in many ways or as unbelievable perhaps but that is actually the fake story and it's misdirection and it's theatrical and it's 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 artistic and acting in that particular sense i mean i, have to admit, I did think it's probably fake um when i start when he started talking about it but you never can quite tell but in that context i'm not even sure how much of the entire documentary is true yeah if I'm yeah so you know so the whole thing kind of like juggles itself in that particular process it's quite interesting in that in that way um yeah i will say I, when the film started i was very much braced for at which point are you going to try and pull the wool over my eyes <laughs> so it yeah it, um, yeah, yeah and Again, the, the story itself was an entertaining one rather than, a, oh my goodness, for a minute I was rushing out to try and Google Picasso and see who is this 22 yeah. pictures he did. Yeah, yeah, yeah um, it's true. It was interesting. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah. Um, so I think, I think you know, that we've rattled through the, the documentary itself there, but in, in essence, the documentary is an, in, it's a treatise, or it's maybe it's not even a treatise really. It is a, a film essay, effectively, on the art industry on the value of art and the relationship between art and art experts mm. and who actually own that relationship, whether the expert saying that a forgery is from the artist, does that make the forger an artist or not? Um, or does that make the expert, the art dealer, a forger uh, or a fraud? You know, it's that kind of context as well. It's about the relationship between identity, I think, and double identities and the creation of um, false identities in that context of which Orson Welles is imbued in that story. He's inherent in that story, as are most actors and storytellers in the context. And uh, it's a documentary about the nature of storytelling in that context as well. Effectively, what is what is the truth in that particular process? Now, we'll come on to our thoughts of the film and the thematic style of the film. And I think that's where actually we'll get into a lot of the discussion and description of what we're seeing in front of us. So we've described things like the woman walking down the street with men ogling her. But there's a lot more to that particular sequence than just the description of that event. At face value, that sounds a little bit disingenuous and a little bit misogynistic. But in the context of the film, there's something happening in that which is of interest to the discussion around what is truth, what is real and what is actually fake and fraud in that particular context as well. OK, so it sounds like we've concluded our, our, our pre-seat. We will come back to you uh, with some analysis and the reason why James chose this film. Indeed. Welcome back. We will now look at uh, why James chose F for fake for his weekend at Crombie's of August. James, take it away. 
Thank you. Yeah, so um, F are fake. A, a number of reasons, I guess. Uh, I think, yeah, and this, let's start with the obvious. F are fake for me fits into the the rule structure, I guess, of a weekend at Crombie's um, discussion in that it is, I think, an unloved film which has not had the um, the, the, the kind of light sh- shone on it as I think perhaps it should have, given that it was directed by one of Hollywood's greatest directors in Orson Welles. Um, I've not seen, having having said that, having said all of that, um, I've not seen many Orson Welles films. Yeah, are you, are you a fan of Orson Welles, or is it just, again, as I um, know the big ones? Well, I, I, I've seen Citizen Kane, yeah. uh, and it, it's, you know, I, I'm aware of its status in the pantheon of, of, of Hollywood films. Um, I like it. I, you know, I don't, it's not my favourite film of all time, but I can understand why it's lauded the way that it is. It has a lot of techniques in it, which you still see today, which are used, which were probably used better in Citizen Kane. And it was made by a 24 year old and it was his first film and it was made in 1941, I think. And so you watch a film like Citizen Kane now and you look at it and think, yeah, okay, I can understand, but what's all the fuss about? Well, that film is the reason for many, 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 many other directors directing films. I mean, take Scorsese, for example. A lot of the tropes and the ideas and the techniques in Citizen Kane are just used by him in many ways. So, you know, it's it's a very, it's a really kind of important film. Having said that, I've not, I've only, I've only seen a, one other of his films called Chimes at Midnight, which is a film about Falstaff, kind of minor Shakespearean character from a number of Shakespeare plays, of which Orson Welles actually took, he, he, he wrote the script and he, nothing in the script that he wrote for Chimes at Midnight was original text by him. It was taken from, I think, three or four plays by Shakespeare, and it was amalgamated together to create a new play called, called Chimes at Midnight. And, um, you know, much like many of Orson Welles's career after Citizen Kane, his hands were pretty much tied behind his back. He was, um, in terms of filmmaking, he was uh, a lot of his films were taken away from him by the studios because they weren't considered to be commercially successful and they were re-edited and recut. The Magnificent Ambersons is, is an example of that, as is A Touch of Evil as well. He was often verging on bankruptcy to make the films that he wanted to make. Chimes at Midnight is a key example of that. It was filmed over seven years. He was almost always on the verge of bankruptcy and had to use um, actors and actresses. Uh, points at which they had nothing else to do in other films so you, could see, you physically see these actors aging when they shouldn't be aging and you know it's, the, some of the film quality isn't great but it's a brilliant piece of making by Orson Welles in that context and Effa Fake is another example of this and I just think it's a really interesting process that for someone so profoundly important in, in cinema history he has a he has he has you know many 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 of his films basically were cut and paste together from different ideas were brought together through you know hand-to-mouth kind of filmmaking and um you know i just don't understand how it's happened how it happened yeah, with Orson yeah. well so i wanted to to kind of shine a light on this one given it was his final film that he directed um and so i thought actually you know it's not very well known it's kind of gone under the radar a little bit it wasn't particularly it, it actually wasn't a critical success when really. at all it's only yeah. subsequently it's garnered some kind of critical reappraisal because it's a new type of filmmaking. Orson Welles said of F for Fake that he he viewed it, he, he saw it as the start of a, a new wave of Orson Welles films, and it was a new type of film, and it did nothing. And in the end, travelling around as he always was for fun, funding and financing to make films, it just never happened. Yeah. I just think it's a, it's a shame. So that's why I chose F for Fake. One of the other things, F for Fake is an example of this key kind of bad luck that Orson Welles has. He was originally hired to edit a film that uh, a guy called Francois Reichenbach was making about Elmer de Horry. Okay, so it wasn't actually originally um, Orson Welles's film; it was Reichenbach's film, and it was going to be a straight documentary about Elmer de Horry. A very simple, a very straightforward documentary about this art forger and his life. It was only whilst the film, the documentary, was being made that. 
Clifford Irving, who was a friend of Corey, who was writing his biography, exploded into the national uh, and consciousness, the public public eye, by producing a, a, a fake biography of, of Howard Hughes, the you know the great Hollywood mogul and the kind of the pre-war. Uh, kind of a- aviator. Well, he was an aviator, wasn't he? He was. Yeah. He was. He was an all-round kind of business person. I guess he was a figure. He was a public figure. As shown in the Leonardo DiCaprio film, The Aviator. The Aviator. There we go. In later life, obviously had some mental health issues and became a recluse, holed up in a in a, a, um, a Las Vegas hotel room, of which most of Las Vegas he actually bought so that he would never have to be seen outside of this particular hotel room. So you know, Howard Hughes was a, a kind of reclusive figure that that Clifford Irving had. He told people that he had actually met in Mexico and he had told him the story of, of, of why he was a recluse and he wrote this into his, his, his biography. Um, now, whether he actually met Howard Hughes or not, we don't know. Howard Hughes denies it fusely, but there are known to be doubles of Howard Hughes. But anyway, I digress a little bit. The, the principle here is that Orson Welles was hired as an editor. This is the idea that Orson Welles was hired as an editor, not even the filmmaker. He was, a, he, was a, he was a hired hand. That's all he was at this particular point in his career. And when this new story came up, he realised that perhaps there was something in this story that he could also use to create this new kind of film essay. So it's rather than the documentary itself, it's it's actually a film about almost Orson Welles. Orson Welles is in this film. It's not filmed by him. He is part of the story itself. So even in this particular context, Orson Welles had no control over what was happening in the film to begin with until the story emerged. So this film was then made over... The, the, so the, the documentary itself has clips in it that are over a decade old, from when the film was actually released. That's how long the, the documentary took to complete. Yeah, and that's alluded to in the documentary. He makes some comment, because at one point he's, he appears without a beard, and he's, he's yeah. doing something in the documentary, and then he kind of throws away saying, that all went tits up, so then I grew my, grew my beard back, went to Riviera and started again. And you're thinking, this is all in a documentary, shouldn't you be keeping that a secret? Yeah, I know, I know. And that, that's what I quite, that's what I found really interesting about the film, because it is, again, it's a film, it's a film about the kind of misdirection and um, the kind of trickery of, of filmmaking in and of itself. Yeah. But actually, in a lot of instances, Orson Welles reveals his hand so much in the process of filmmaking. Yeah. There's one particular scene in, in, in it when he's in the editing room talking about the, the, um, the kind of the, the, the trickery of forgery, where the, um, the, uh, the reel of film spins off from the um the uh, I can't remember what it's called, but the kind of the the, the film spin. So the it's projector, all like it's yeah. the projector, yeah. And I can't work out whether that's actually a genuine mistake in the film or whether it was actually played for. Yeah, I was, I was the same. I think is it was is this meant? Is it happened dramatically at this point? Is he? Yeah. Did he just leave it in? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I'm banging on a little bit, but the reason why I chose this film, because it seemed the story of it seems very interesting. It's a neglected film by a by a, uh, um, a, 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 you know, someone who is regularly considered a bit of a genius. And I think it it fundamentally sums up his entire career in Hollywood, where actually he's scrabbled around. And this film is it's it's a it's a cut and paste job in many ways. And it's serendipity. It's 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 emerged out of a number of different narratives and it's created a narrative of its own. And I think, you know, even a minor Orson Welles um, film like this one, it's probably got more things in it than most directors can hope for in in one of their biggest epics, as it were. Yeah. So that's why I chose it. Interesting stuff. So, you know, there's a lot. Yeah, there were there were a lot of themes in the film, and I, I thought, think you know, conscious that I'm talking quite a lot to you, but just, I'm talking in the way that the film is edited and the film is presented. So um, we spoke about the the synopsis of the film, and actually, it's much easier to talk about how the film is put together in that particular context. Yeah. There is a nominal story being told about forgery and about art. The way that the film is presented is quite intriguing and very very dense so the film starts and it's kind of like got a scattergun approach to start with we are introduced to two or three and actually more storylines because not only do we have the Elmi de Hori storyline and the Clifford Irving storyline we have the storyline about the way that the documentary started and the way that Orson Welles has got involved in the story we have this character called is it Oja? 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 
Oja Korda, um, who we don't know who she is at the start of the film, and she seems to play quite a, a an important role in it, except for the fact that she seems to be, again, a character entirely used for misdirection in the film. So she's introduced, but then actually is used as a point of reference in the film to make the case for the fact that we can be tricked into thinking a film is doing something, but it's in fact doing something else. As an example, we spoke about the idea that this woman, this Oja Korda woman, is walking through a Mediterranean um, city, um, you know, beautiful hot weather. She's she's wearing kind of like a you know lovely flowery dress. She's obviously very shapely. She's a beautiful woman. And um, it cuts to men ogling her, you know. But you know, this scene goes on for like five or six minutes and you've got you know, old men, young men, taxi drivers, men coming out of um, shops, men sitting around drinking in cafes, all as she walks past looking. Now, in some instances, you see her walking and you see the man behind her or next to her just staring at her as she walks past. In other scenes, it's cut to a figure of a man or a scene of a man just looking in out of camera, as it were, but you don't know what that person's looking at. So there's a situation in, in there where you don't necessarily know whether that, you know, those, all of those individuals were filmed at the same time or whether they are filmed over different time periods or in different places. And as it turns out, actually, a lot of that, a lot of that particular sequence was cut in to give the impression that these individuals were ogling this particular character when in fact they were filmed as part of a different film that Orson Welles was making at that particular point in time and they were cut into that sequence to give that impression giving another impression of the idea that this has been tricked we have been tricked into thinking that this is a story about men ogling a beautiful woman when actually he has created this story based on a cut and paste job from lots of different snippets from everywhere else and so that kind of sets the scene for the film. And then it, it goes at quite a pace with the editing. And I found it very difficult in the first 15, 20 minutes to really get a handle on what was going on in the film. Yeah, it does soften itself yeah, out. Stylistically, again, the, the sort of the attention deficit, quick, quick cuts. Yeah. In, 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 is going back over. It's funny how Orson Welles, you said he said he was doing a new kind of, of, of storytelling and this kind of stuff. Um, mm. I actually found it quite familiar now because it's very yeah. reminiscent of what YouTube documentaries like. YouTube documentaries use that style a lot. Absolutely. It is, it is quicker yeah, and it's sharp things. And it's funny how it's when you go back to something, you said Citizen Kane, you'd watch it now and you think, well, what's the fuss about? And the reason you think that yeah. is because it's inspired so many people, it looks it looks unoriginal when in fact yeah. it was the original same way I've, I've i've seen films that are held as classics and i don't quite get the first because yeah. their styles have been copied so much this felt the same actually it felt that oh i've seen this before is this original yeah. maybe this was the first time this had been seen um and it's inspired so many others it now looks quite familiar yeah i i agree i i, I, would, I would go a little bit further with this with with f fake in the sense that the the, the the style of editing in the film actually it, it, okay it's certainly inspired many others but it's become such a common trope in filmmaking now it's considered the norm mm. isn't it so it's 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 less even than inspiring directors to copy this an uh, 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 Wellesian approach to editing or filmmaking it's just fundamentally you see it in I mean I think you see it in documentaries and filmmaking as you say YouTube cuts trailers so much now is the way that this film is edited and put together it's that quick sharp cutting it's the never letting anyone get a handle on a specific point i mean you look at action films nowadays a lot of the editing in the action sequences is is totally what you see in f for fake because you, you, the, the cuts happen so quickly probably for budgetary requirements that yeah, you'll never I, quite... I, I, yeah i would say that is a that has a different origin point because that is for budgetary requirements it's easier to, to shoot an action scene that doesn't require choreography it just requires yeah. a shot of someone punching a shot of someone falling down and this kind of stuff but uh, you're, you're certainly well, right yeah. in that this is completely the norm now but is it, well, can you draw a line can you say before effort fake this was not how people did things you know, well uh, i you know I, I i can't say for sure yeah. i can't say for sure but um i'm i'm of the understanding that this kind of quick paced editing the jump cut editing in here is one of the first examples one of the first examples yeah. of this kind of filmmaking okay. um and so, you know, what Orson Welles has done here is that he has he has created a new type of film and it's a it, he's created it in a film which is pretty much born out of other films and born out of 
other bits of information that he's gathered together in this context. So that's the kind of style of filmmaking we see there. And actually, you know, that, that example of, of, of Oja Korda walking through the streets and the men ogling her, there is example of that type of filmmaking throughout the documentary. So there are many, many, many sequences in the film where you see Elmir de Hori talking about his forgeries. There's one scene in the cafe, for example, where he's talking about, um, you know, uh, why he likes living in Ibiza and why he likes Spain and the fact that actually, you know, he doesn't like prison. He doesn't want to go back to prison, but that's just how it is. And then it cuts to a scene of Clifford Irving talking to, well, what we think is Clifford Irving talking to Elmi de Hori. And we think it's in the same party, but it's not. Yeah. They are, they are, they are two completely different and separate interviews that were conducted by Francois Rackenbike. Um, that were put together by Orson Welles to make it seem like they're having a conversation and they're not having a conversation at all, but they create a story based on this. And there's one particularly extended scene when um, uh, Clifford Irving and Elmer de Hori are having this pretend conversation because they're not actually in the same room together about whether Elmer de Hori has ever signed yeah. any of the yeah. paintings. And of course he says, Elmer de Hori says, I never signed any of the paintings. And Clifford Irving says, well, he must have signed the paintings because they've been signed. So who else has signed them? But that particular sequence, who, and then you get kind of there's silence between them. And it's, the camera it's, cuts yeah. between Clifford Irving and Elbid Hori looking at each other, doing different movements of the face. And it's completely separate. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's played like a staring contest, like one of them is trying to outnerve the other one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But they're different. They're filmed at different times. They're filmed in different places, and they can consist of different people. And yet, the narrative is created to create that story about Elmer de Hori, the great art forger. And what Orson Welles has done is, in a really kind of fantastical piece of postmodernism, created a story that doesn't exist in a film about a story that is about. And I find it kind of mind blowing a little bit, but it kind of works, and it kind of makes sense in that context. Yeah. Sorry, you go on. No, no, I was, I was saying what, what, what I was looking for something else to, to claw into to talk about now. Um, well, uh, <laughs> I sense you've got something go you'd like to say. Yeah. So let me go on. So th- there's, there's an issue, there's a principal point of the filmmaking style which has enabled Orson Welles to make his case for the relationship between art as a product. Um, and by product, I mean something that you can buy and sell art as an industry and the inherent truth about what art is in its own context. And they're two very different things. So on one side, and again, this is born purely out of the way that the film is constructed and the story that it is telling. On one side, you have the idea that art in and of itself is a concept which is fundamentally truthful. And it reveals truth in and of itself, irrespective of who has produced it and why they have produced it. So the fact that Elmer de Hori has produced forgeries of famous artists, but that those forgeries have found themselves in famous museums all around the world for people to watch as famous pieces of art, does not detract from the fact that his paintings are art or is art in and of itself irrespective of who actually painted it and the story that Orson Welles um, concocts at the end about Picasso and the the master art forger grandfather who has created a completely new wave of Picasso drawings by forging existing ones is the prime example of that does it matter who has done it if it's art he quotes Rudyard Kipling in one of his uh, um, poems the conundrum of workshops when the flicker of London's sun falls faint on the club rooms green and gold, the sons of Adam sit down and scratch with their pens in the mould. They scratch with their pens in the mould of their graves and the ink and the anguish start for the devil mutters behind the leaves. It's pretty, but is it art? And that's a fundamental principle of what Orson Welles is telling us here. It's pretty, but is it art? That's not the decision that we have to make. And that comes from the other side of the argument the industry, the product of what art is. And it's the industry which is effectively, not tainting per se, but making decisions about what constitutes art in that particular context, what constitutes truth as a consequence of that, and what constitutes um, falsity or lies as a consequence of that. Bringing the Clifford Irving um, argument into it as well, which is he has built this biography of Howard Hughes up, it's the same principle. He has created a forged biography of Howard Hughes. 
it was a book that was a huge sensation. It was filled with conjecture and non-truths, as it were. But is it art? Is it a piece of fiction or is it a biography that he lied about? Now, as it happens, he actually did lie about it because he came he came he came um, came clean in the end and actually um, served a period of time in jail about it. But the fundamental principle is we see now quite a lot of instances of docudramas being created, false documentaries being created. The idea that you can have films and you can have novels and books that are made in a certain stylistic ter- terminology and, and kind of language that are about, you know, this is a story about a diary of a particular individual. The diary is made up. It's not true. But it's still a diary. It's presented as truth in that context. So I think, you know, I think there's just so much going on there, which I found fascinating. I think the key principle is that that the two pathways, as it were, art as inherent as truth and art as product as industry. Yeah, I think Wells does very well in trying trying to bring those two together. Well, I was fortunate watching this in that uh, my co-viewer, um, Mrs. Morgan, has, uh, again, a degree in art history. So I was oh, okay. able to, to tap into knowledge that I did not have. Mm-hmm. But, again, I learned that this idea of, like, the artist or, the, 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 say, the painter as as the, the, the creative genius is a mm. relatively new one. It, again, it, it's a sort of 19th, 20th century thing where you have the, the Picasso, who is the genius, pouring out his work and therefore, you know, he can blow his nose and that handkerchief has inherent value as a Picasso. Um, yeah. Whereas yes. previously, the artist was a, a sort of craftsman producer. He was like the Rembrandt worked in a studio and everyone was doing the painting and maybe Rembrandt yeah. would come along and do the odd pen stroke or maybe he wouldn't but it yeah. wasn't important it was but he, you know, and he also had a patron probably that's the and thing it's like someone yeah. who, who purchased his you know who gave him the money to make the work yeah, well exactly he was he was it was a commercial business and like yeah. they were they artists were seen on the same way as say stonemasons was exactly. a stonemason whose job yeah. was to create beautiful pieces of stonemasonry but you wouldn't suddenly grab a gargoyle and say oh this is an authentic um it was right. just simply there was someone there who was producing this this stuff um, yeah. Whereas now, again, again, Picasso is probably the, obviously the, the, the great example of this, is of this this artist genius, and therefore that opens the door to both fakery um, and experts did, on judging on whether this is true or genuine and this kind of stuff, um, which. It wasn't really touched on the documentary because actually, funny enough, the the people I don't know whether Orson Welles had the wrong people to interview or they just weren't yeah. interested in it. But I don't think Irvin is is much of an expert in this because he was kind of just pontificating a bit, saying you know the the yeah. the art market has ruined this, and you didn't learn yeah. why. You learned you learned that he thought it had, and clearly there was a lot of fakery going on. Yeah. Um, but you didn't get but to the bottom of this. So I, I, all I got from this was the, the surface level. I I never got came away with an understanding of why this is the case whether this is a good or bad thing um no. but you, you um so again it was maybe you're right it's it's an essay on again the nature of truth not so much a documentary on art forgery because it didn't document art forgery in that sense yeah. that's ex- that's exactly what i was going to say i don't think Orson wells is particularly interested in whether the idea of art forgery is good or bad mm. i don't i if if i was if i was pushed i would say that Orson wells is probably ambivalent toward either but I, his argument isn't about the rights and wrongs of, of forgery mm. per se it's about how forgery tells us something about the process of telling stories and artistic endeavor and ultimately without wanting to sound too pretentious the idea of what truth actually stands for and is yeah. objectively which which art is able to do and w- within that context there's um uh, quite an extended scene Toward the end of the the, the, the film itself, where um, you know Orson Welles goes full introspection and starts talking at length about um, you know, not only his own career in kind of forgery, i.e. the War of the Worlds announcement in in the I think it was in the late 30s, wasn't it? Yeah, um, the radio. The radio was yeah. Basically, you know, he said that the aliens have landed and Martians are invading, and everyone basically went insane because they thought it was real. But also his his. Um, but his, it was interesting he had to me. He, he he documented that quite thoroughly actually for for something that was again for a film yeah. that wasn't about being that thorough. And I was thinking, well, yeah. surely that I mean that story is quite famous now. I mean, you ask you know one of the two things you know about Orson Welles is Citizen Kane and the War of the Worlds scandal. Yeah. Um, and yeah. it's funny that sort of you know, 30, 40 years ago that surely would be even fresh in people's minds. So I think that was in one sense him taking a very good example of fakery you know that was a, a very good almost unintentional hoax on the other hand it was probably him doing a lap of honor of, of covering his past glories because he probably didn't need that much time on on the war of the worlds um 
than no, he gave it. Perhaps, but the, the fun, the, one of the consequences of, of, of highlighting that particular um, uh, story is that, and I think he, he references this in, 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 in the film itself, Elmir de Hori effectively does a similar thing in the sense that he forges reality. And he went to prison for it, or, or he, well, okay, he went to prison for something else. But effectively, he was, he was being, he was, he was, um, the French police were after him. Whereas Wells did something that you might consider to be far more reckless, um, and had no discernible ramifications put yeah. against him anywhere. So, so there's that kind of not a hypocrisy, I guess, really, because he's not really making that statement. But there's, it's this, it's a fundamental similar process that's going on there. And yeah, the same. Th- and he's, I think he's what he's doing is he's saying the same thing about theatre and film and cinema as a concept that what we are actually doing is lying. We're creating lies for you to believe every single day by writing books by putting on plays and by making films it's the same thing it's a reflection of the truth rather than the truth itself and Elmer de Hori all he is actually doing is creating a reflection of the truth rather than truth itself and in that context it's not for us to decide what that truth is <laughs> or not um, so so there's this reflective introspective period of the film that he goes on to and you know, it moves into this kind of the kind of um, introspection around um, uh, architecture and other forms of, of, of art as well. And um, he kind of lingers on the, the uh, Chartres Cathedral um, in, in France yeah. um, as an example of possibly, you know, um, uh, Western civilization's finest achievement, this particular cathedral and the way that it's in its architectural design and its beauty. And he said, you know, there's no signature on it. It doesn't need a signature. Implication being that, of course, it doesn't need a signature to be art. It doesn't need an artist's um, uh, cross on it, as it were. And that, you know, when time um, finally ends and, you know, civilizations crumble around us, art will still exist. That that infrastructure will still exist, whether there's an industry or not. And I think that's quite an interesting point that he's making as well. Yeah, yeah. He describes himself as a charlatan. Throughout the film, he describes himself as a charlatan. He's a conjurer in that context. And what I love, what I loved about his role in the film is that he is, he he is not ashamed to drop himself right in the middle of this documentary and make it about him. Yeah. You know, and I think that's what that's what differentiates the film from being a documentary because it isn't objective in any way, shape, or form. Orson Welles is not interested in 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 making objective statements. He's interested in his view, and that's what the film does. Yeah, and funnily enough, actually, there's um, this was I thought about in terms of uh, of stylization too. There's quite a few shots of of Orson Welles. Okay, partly he's you know he, sometimes he's walking around the studio, sometimes he's walking around the streets narrating, and again he's he's a fantastic narrator. You know the, the ninety minutes he's oh, he talking, is. you never see Garrett, that, 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 yeah, that, that, the voice and the style and the the, the, the you know, even at what was clearly the twilight of his career, he could always hold the camera. But oh, there's also definitely. scenes when he's he's still he's still telling the story, but he's in a you know he's in some kind of Riviera restaurant where you know plates of, <laughs> of seafood are being flung upon him, and he's knocking back the wine, and he's got his pals around him, um, and clearly you get the impression that. You know, were you ever to have a dinner party with Orson Welles, you'd never get a word in um, because oh, he, yeah, he holds court. And in fact, there's one scene when he's he's talking to the guy to his left, and there's a woman to his right who's doing that thing where you have to lean forward and lean in and just hopefully try and engage in the conversation, <laughs> even though you know no one's ever going to talk to you. And I've been there many yeah. times, um, but it's, uh, but it's um, it almost feels like again yeah, this 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 document or this this video essay is what it would like to ha- be having Orson Welles at your dinner party. You'd 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 you'd, you'd learn something. Yeah, it would it would go off on on tangents. You had no yeah. idea where it was going and no real control where they were yeah. going to. Um, you'd, you'd you'd never shut up about it until he was good and ready to finish what he's saying. What he's saying, um, and yeah, it uh, that that's what I took away from it. Think, yeah, if you're if you're prepared to go the distance, you'll come away with yeah. something. But well, um, the, don't yeah, expect a conversation. No, it's true. And the, he's he, I would imagine he's he's an entertaining host. Yeah. You know, absolutely been entertaining host. No, but I think he he's an entertaining guest. I don't. I don't think he. he hosts. Oh, yeah, you're right. I yeah. think he he would, he's, yeah. he's at someone else's party who's been brought on to yeah. do a turn. But you know, I, you know, without wanting to stretch a, 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 a kind of an, an analogy too far, what you've probably done there is describe Orson Welles's career as well, in the sense that he has had at any one point in time maybe six, seven, eight projects on the go, yeah. and hasn't been able to complete any of them because he is. He's not able to bring it 
down into a key point or argument or focus for him to actually say, well, I'm doing this now. He would fit to something else. So he changes halfway through a project. He'll change to something else. Yeah. He loses funding for something because actually he's got an idea to do something else. I mean, for many years, he was supposed to be developing the, the Don Quixote story. Um, and eventually, it, I think this it was in it was in pre-production for about 15 or 20 years. And in the end, he changed the formal name of the film from Don Quixote to when will I finish Don Quixote? <laughs> uh, it, so it's things like that that he just you know chimes at midnight, a film that that was filmed pretty much over a decade because he couldn't get it together to actually film the film that he needed to film in that context. You know, it's just so much of Orson Welles's character is is in F for Fake, yeah. and is in those scenes where he's garrulously chomping down lobster and you know bucketfuls of champagne and wine and he's holding court and everyone is effectively listening to what he's saying but you also get the impression that there's a few eyes rolling in there as well <laughs> and you know, well, wells is off on one again okay well just give him 20 minutes and then maybe we can get a word in edgeways and 20 minutes goes and he's still talking about something <laughs> for god's sake awesome just stop you know uh, you know he's uh, i mean he, he he's i really enjoyed his character in the film but um i think that his psyche is not, he, you know, his brain is not somewhere that you would want to stay for very long i don't think in that yeah. context yeah um so you know i mean there's there's a lot going on in the film um there's a lot happening in the film in the context of what he's trying to say i think that there's perhaps too much meandering and wanderings through the artistic endeavor that that Orson Welles is, is trying to deliver here for it to be a truly coherent and consistent piece um but I think that in the, in the context of that you know I, I don't mind the fact that he's 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 a he's a flaneur really isn't he he's one of those kind of um taking in everything around him and true if you're going with him and you're listening to his story, but you don't necessarily know where it's headed or, or, or where it's where it's come from. And I quite I quite like that. But it's a bit frustrating as well in that context. Yeah. Any other thoughts on style of the film? For me, as we've discussed, one of the most interesting pieces of, of the way that the film was was made was the um, cobbling together of, from what I understand, thousands, literally thousands of pieces of other films documentaries and stock footage of activities um into this one broader process apparently the film took over a year to edit um and uh yeah was finally released in 1975 i think or 1976 when it was actually started the original documentary by francois rackenbeit was started in the late 60s okay. and so you can, you can see that you can see that change in the process as well <laughs> going on there so effectively i think francois reckonbike gave up on yeah. um and, and that was when orson Wilson took over and made it into something completely different you know again an interesting an interesting detour in that particular uh, process yeah speaking, um, speaking of timelessness the movie yet yeah, is painfully 70s i mean irving has, oh, it's, it's, has the, the polo neck and the sideburns yeah. and it's it's, it's just smoke everyone everyone smokes and uh, yeah and uh, it's, it's just it, it couldn't possibly again the um yeah it's, it's very set in its time yeah, exactly. Um, so, you know, anything else from, from your perspective with regards to the way that the, the, the film was made? I realise uh, I've basically talked at about 100 miles an hour there for about 20 minutes, so I apologise. No, to our listener. Again, it's, 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 to our listener, it's one of those films where you can either, again, you could say nothing or you could go on for hours about it. It's, yeah. it's, it get, because it's not like you could just you can just chop up the pieces and, and look at them individually. You're just basically sifting through the sands until you find something to, to discuss. So I think that's all I've got for the moment. Yeah. Okay. That's all good. Okay. So yeah. I think Join us when we will we will give our scores for F for Fake, and we will um, we will say what film we'll be watching next month. Welcome back, and it is time to give our scores on the doors, yep. as tradition dictates. I forget what does tradition dictate who goes first. Literally about to say, Hugh, that despite this being the eighth episode of Weekend at Combis, I have forgotten completely 
what, what, what the tradition is with regards to giving the scores. I have well, a feeling I, I think that it's other this person F for fake. So I, I would give the scores first. F for fake has completely thrown that style off. It has, it hasn't it? It, it has, yeah. Uh, so, so I will give my, my score first, then we'll hear what you score. So as always, we give it from uh, one to five floating crombie heads, no half marks, no zeros allowed. Um, mm. And this is an interesting one. Um, this is probably the toughest score I've had to conclude to because just stepping away from the film initially I would have given it a lower score because I didn't I I kind of it challenged me and I certainly didn't leave it not thinking of things I was left even thinking of things but in terms of something that I enjoyed or found entertaining or even wished to revisit I didn't <laughs> this sounds like any film that I choose <laughs> Well, you know, you do you do have your finger on what's popular and entertaining. But no, basically, <laughs> I would say, yeah, um, I mean, yeah, I would give it, I think I'm going to give it three floating crombie heads. I, okay. it, it, and I think a lot, at least half a crombie head is based off a discussion we've had this evening, which is not Ooh. common. I think you've, you've opened my eyes to half-formed ideas that were in there that I wasn't prepared to give credit to, and I am now going to. I think as a, just as a look into... A, again, a style that Orson Welles was putting together from, again, from scraps. This was clearly not an intentional video essay he made. He intended to make. It was put together almost from what he could manage. I think it deserves three crombie heads. I think it's worth three crombie heads of your brain matter to watch. Um, <laughs> but I, I don't think I would ever watch it again. Okay. I think yeah okay that's 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 a very fair and reasoned argument Hugh uh, much 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 more fair than um, Phantom of the Paradise's one crombie head do you know do you know, every every that. time you give me a new film to watch I leave thinking I feel so bad for Phantom of the Paradise <laughs> I'd watch that again in a heartbeat I'd, I really would yeah, exactly um, so uh, f right so for me um, and also sorry Manfred you still haven't left you has it. <laughs> no, it hasn't, no, it hasn't. We could be on year there. eight, and you'll be calling out Phantom of the Paradise. <laughs> yeah. Well, Weekend at Crombies episode seven hundred and ninety-two. <laughs> I'll still be referencing Phantom of the Paradise. But um, anyway, your score. Yeah. What is your score for F so, for so Fake? My score for F for Fake. So, um, there's a, a quote toward the end of the film that um, Wells. Um, describes um, that Picasso states and he states that art is a lie a lie that makes us realise the truth and I think that Orson Welles' ambition with this particular film essay, I'm going to call it rather than documentary, was to reveal a version of the truth that perhaps we had taken for granted with the concept of art as a product or art as something inherent. I think those lofty ambitions were noble, um, both in the um, intention of the film and the way that it was filmed itself and the way that it was made. I think the reality of that is that he didn't quite get the truth that I was expecting from the way that the film was, was um, presented to us. I think that there are some profound moments of insight and they are coupled with some meanderings and some wanderings which perhaps lead us down false paths. I guess what I don't know is whether those false paths were intentional or not. And that will probably go, that will unfortunately go with Wells to the grave. But because of that, I'm going to give F for Fake three Crombie Heads. Wow, this might be our yeah. first uh, consensus Crombie Heads for quite some time. I think it is, yeah, for, for, certainly since... Santa Claus the movie. Um, Santa Claus the movie, yeah, the original. So there we go. That's what, F, what do F for Fake and Santa Claus the movie have in common? They've brought us together. <laughs> Something that has never been uttered before. <laughs> there you go then. F for Fake. Um, I hope we've given you some impression of what it's like. It's really something that has to be seen. Um, yeah, to, to, be, to be ingested. Um, yeah, and I, I, I completely agree with you, Hugh, actually. I, I, this is a very challenging movie to describe. Unlike, for um, example, Too Late the Hero, which you could spend two and a half hours describing. Oh, yeah. Why wouldn't you spend why two wouldn't and a half you? hours describing and Too Late the Hero? Two and a half hours listening to that description. Oh, I mean, if, if, for example, any of our listeners gave up on Weekend at Combis after having listened to or tried to get through Too Late the Hero, they have missed out on three, three? 
absolute humdinger of, of episodes. Humdinger of episodes. That's terrible. Not, That's not, terrible not to mention not knowing how the uh, the weird the too late the hero ended. I mean, <laughs> and, exactly, and let's say that yeah. the last forty five minutes of the story is the is the good bit. Exactly. But yeah, uh, FFA is a very yeah. difficult film to describe. Yeah. But I do think it's worth watching. So I think any, any of our listeners interested in, in, in something a bit different yeah. should should check out F for Fake. And as again, as um, it is a film so um, so maligned and so yeah. unpopular that it's available for free on YouTube. Possibly it's, it it's a knockoff, um, but uh, but no one's bothered it's to take it down because no one can be bothered <laughs> to enforce the copyright on it. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so ironically, um, we, we we saw a forgery of F for Fake. <laughs> Maybe we did. Maybe yeah. we did. Um, I, I obviously this is the moment that everyone looks forward to. Um, it's very near the end of the podcast. It's a joke that I will continue to use, uh, although I did note on this occasion you didn't laugh at all um, in the context. But we do have um, a, a weekend at Crombie's episode nine film that, that is worth um, investigating. So Hugh, it's your turn for okay. September's weekend at Crombie's. What, what's the film? What's it going to be? Okay, I will. I will save most of the preamble and the rationale for next next episode as we always do so I'll just give the title and let the chips fall where they may uh, with, with, with the caveat that I'm suggesting this in the spirit of Weekend at Crombie's and in utter sincerity um, oh no what's it going to be <laughs> is, is, uh, this, oh no <laughs> this is going to be my dancer in the dark isn't it <laughs> well let's find out next month because next month we will be watching Nuns on the Run <laughs> So that's um, Eric Idle and Robbie Coltrane. Um, oh, that's it, yeah, Robbie Coltrane. Okay, yeah, I've not seen that film for years. No, 1990s farce, uh, Nuns on the Run. It'll be our first comedy. <laughs> yes, I was going to say you and include a comedy. Dancer in the Dark. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that was laugh a minute. <laughs> Laugh a minute. Well, I look forward to discussing nuns on the run with you. Even saying that <laughs> makes me laugh, which bodes well, to be honest. That's what you want from a comedy. So we shall it see. Is. Yeah. Well, I want a bit more, <laughs> to be honest. But you know, it's a start. Okay. Um, so with that, we uh, yep. we bid you adieu, and uh, we hope that you enjoy your weekend at Crombies. Evening all. It's, it's amazing how difficult it is to fake a swig of tea, isn't it? Oh. It's like it's like acting walking. <laughs> it's impossible. <laughs>